And this is Pop Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks. This episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. And welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show. And in the virtual studio today is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week. Hey, Fred. Hello, Greg. Happy to be here today. So how are we doing in the swing state that didn't quite swing yesterday, at least for those over 30? That's right. Florida gave a little bit of a surprise last night, as did a few other states. Interesting yeah. day after, I'll say that. Oh, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that in this uh, session, no doubt. Uh, now, for those of you not familiar with Fred, he is a veteran healthcare executive and the president of Accountable Health, LLC, which is a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Fred serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Population Health Management and the advisory board of Care Innovations Validation Institute. He is a past chair and former board member of the Population Health Alliance. Fred is known on Twitter as F.S. Goldstein. My background includes thought leadership and strategy consulting for hospitals, health systems, and physician-led ventures. I publish and principally author ACOWatch.com healthinnovationmedia.com, and precisionmedicine.center. And if you're in the market for digital media content development, curation, and engagement for your hospital, health system, or physician venture, ping me on Twitter via at 2HealthGuru. And now for today's special guest, Dan Monroe is a writer on the topics of technology, innovation, and policy that are unfolding inside of America's largest industries, healthcare. First appearing in Forbes as a contributor in 2011, Dan has written for a wide range of global brands and print publications. His first book, Casino Healthcare, was published earlier this year, and he is also a top writer for consecutive years on the globally popular Q&A site, Quora. The book, Casino Healthcare, is designed to unravel the mystery and complexity of America's healthcare system, which is by far the most expensive in the world, and yet often ranks dead last on key quality metrics when compared to other industrialized countries. Dan graduated from the International School of Brussels before completing an undergraduate before completing undergraduate degrees in computer science and communications with a minor in journalism at the University of Redlands. So Fred, with no further ado, over to you. Let's get, let's get to know Dan and what he's on his mind given the now president-elect Trump. Thanks so much, Greg. And Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, fantastic. So I, I had an opportunity to uh, download on my Kindle, Casino Healthcare, read the book. It's a, it's a great read. Um, let's start out sort of what drove you to, to write the book? Yeah, so I mean, I've been writing about healthcare and innovation and policy up on Forbes for a number of years. And it was really a kind of a, an event last year that triggered it, which was, I, I don't know if you know the author, Michael Lewis, who's written a whole bunch of books, some of which have been, you know, turned into movies, Blindside, um, uh, a lot, The Big Short is probably the most recent one. But last year he was promoting his book called The Flash Boys. And that's about high speed trading on Wall Street. And he was being interviewed by Steve Croft on 60 Minutes. And he said a quote that hit me right between the eyes. And the quote was, uh, if it wasn't complicated, 
it wouldn't be allowed to happen. If it's so complicated that you can't understand it, then you can't question it. And it's like that hit me right between the eyes because in a lot of ways, of course, what he was referencing was high speed trading on Wall Street. But I saw it as in effect the perfect lens into the complexity of our healthcare system. And I thought, boy, wouldn't it be great if there was a kind of primer that helped peel apart the complexity in a way that helps to understand what the road ahead might look like. So you you compare this to a casino, and in your book, you talk about the three casinos, insurance, delivery, and pharmaceuticals. Uh, t- give us some background on why you think it's like a casino and what those three areas are and how they, they uh, result in these problems we're facing in the United States. Sure. So the first one is on the payer side, and, and that's really relative to um, the actuarial math. That, that applies to trying to price products in the insurance industry for uh, healthcare coverage. And so we've been playing in this casino of actuarial coverage for decades. And the math is just brutal, especially when you get it to what Obamacare represents, which is an N equals one or the individual. And that's one of the reasons why that category has been so challenging historically is because you can't really do a product. You can't really do the actuarial math around N equals one. The challenge that we all have as consumers of healthcare or as patients really is that we never know uh, how much healthcare we're gonna need and we never know when we're gonna need it And when we do need it in a very serious way, we're more than likely to spend every dime that we have, including money that we don't have, in order to return uh, to some form of health. And so those variables all make the payer side um, this, this sort of churning casino in terms of whether you're employed whether you're lower income for Medicaid, whether you're part of uh, the Indian Health Services through a heritage selection, whether you're a military service, which would be the, the, the VA, all of these variables are constantly churning. And then we throw in the mix of doing this annually through a process called open enrollment. So the, the, the payer side is churning constantly every year. And then you get these networks on the provider side, which are designed to match to uh, the individual patients. And that side's also churning. And so you have these two sort of churning uh, roulette wheels that happen every year. And it's like, how in the middle of all of that as consumers can we be expected to make intelligent choices for real healthcare delivery, and we can't. And of course, pharmaceutical uh, and and device manufacturers are somewhat in a different casino relative to innovation around the cost of uh, prescription drugs and uh, medical device innovation that is expensive up front, and then you have to find ways on the back end to fund and support that. Got it. And let's dig a little bit deeper in the delivery side. Further on, you put a, did a great discussion on the ruck, and I, I'm not sure that everyone in our audience would know what the ruck is. 
could you give us some background on the ruck and and how that impacts costs? Yeah, so I referenced it in a, this actually started with a piece that I did on Forbes called the healthcare cabal, the healthcare pricing cabal, because that's really kind of what it is. It's the American Medical Association that formulated this group within the AMA that meets uh, three times a year behind closed doors under heavy, under heavy secrecy of non-disclosure. So everybody who attends these, these three times a year meetings has to attend, uh, you know, after having signed a, a, a very legal non-disclosure agreement. There's no press ever invited or allowed at, inside these meetings. And the meetings are designed to arrive at the pricing for what gets referred to CMS or Medicare for establishing base pricing for Medicare procedures and, and uh, healthcare treatments. And it's literally for every treatment and every, um, you know, every sort of uh, healthcare service that, that, these, that the RUC meets and decides what those prices will be as they make those recommendations. And that's really all they are. They're recommendations to CMS. But here's the kicker. Almost 90% of the time, CMS accepts the recommendations of the RUC for pricing. And so that sort of establishes the base pricing uh, that, that, that then carries out through the whole system. So, so this is, in essence, the fox in the hen house, right? Right. right. And if you, look at, if you look at the members that attend these meetings, it's all the different specialty groups. It's the American Association of Ophthalmologists. It's the American Association of Cardiac Surgeons. It's the American Association. It's all these different specialty groups. And of course, they're all looking out for their best interests in terms of getting and maximizing the price for each of the procedures that their, you know, that their specialty represents. And they can only make a recommendation to, to CMS. They can't dictate pricing. But in the saddest twist of all, of course, Medicare, CMS, on average, accepts these recommendations about 90% of the time. Wow. And, and you had a great example in there of, of uh, I believe it was an eye procedure or something where, where they were able to price that and actually put the whole device right. into the first one. And then, um, right. but they're able to use it five or six times. And I recall a couple of years ago talking to someone at the Urban Institute who was doing some study on this and had looked at colonoscopies in particular and determined that the RUC had set the time period it takes to do that about four times as long as it actually took the doctor to do it to justify that high cost. Exactly. So, and so it's a function. That's, that's another aspect of the casino in the sense of gaming these systems in order to do what we do best, which is maximizing revenue and profits. So the system, I argue, and that's the case for the whole book, is that I argue that our system has been optimized for revenue and profits at the expense of safety and quality. That's right. And I, it, it's, it's, we built it this way. And yeah. It, and, and we're getting the result that we built. Exactly. And in fairness to any one segment, I don't blame any one segment. I don't point the finger in the book and say this group is, is responsible for all that ails. 
In effect, what I do is to say they're all complicit, payers, providers, pharmaceutical companies, medical device manufacturers, electronic health record vendors, they're all in the business of profit and revenue. And so they're all complicit. And it's a little bit like the engine of a car. If a car is only getting two miles to the gallon, you don't blame the engine for getting only two miles to the gallon. You say, if we want better gas mileage, we better redesign the engine. Right. Now, it sort of gets to this point, and you see this all the time, sort of where one sector of the industry says, it's not me, and points to the other sector. But at the end of the day, they've all pointed around a circle and it comes right back to the person that started. It really is the entire industry taking advantage of the system. And I'm, I'm, you know, every day are articles of one segment pointing the finger at the other segment as if to say, see, they're doing something egregious over there and it's their fault that we have high pricing. And then next, you know, next week, it's the it's a different segment. And so we get this constant holy war you know, people just pointing the finger at another segment to say they're the ones that are causing the high prices, not us. Yeah. Let's let's go to another area you discussed, and this is probably my favorite phrase of your book, the breezy, breathless bromides of healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, you know, I've been around that segment for a long time. So tell us, what are the breezy, breathless bromides of healthcare? Right. So it's part of what I talk about when I talk about digital health, because there's a lot of focus and a lot of interest, especially from the venture capital community, on how to fund disruption in the healthcare space. And I argue that we're, we're not going to succeed with that approach, because that approach is flawed on the, on the basis that it's around the edges of healthcare, it's not at the core. We have these systemic problems that we need to address in order to get costs down and in order to get more people covered in the healthcare system. And you can't do that with sort of around the edges point solutions that are in the at the end, they're also contributing to the casino aspect because venture capitalists are looking for a return on their investment. They're looking for revenue and profits as well. So the argument is, look, these are great solutions, some of them, and some of them have uh, you know, great metrics, but they're still in the for-profit world of making money. And so far, so far, at least to this point, we haven't seen any of that translate to lower cost for all of us as consumers or patients. And that's the real challenge. Making money in healthcare is rarely a big risk, but how that translates to lower cost is always a big question. Yeah, and I'd also point out is that within those breezy breathless bromides, you mentioned workplace wellness and dietary supplements, which, which of course are areas that have been hammered by some previous guests. And you had Al Lewis mentioned in your book and, and he's yeah. been on as well. And these are, are clearly areas where, where the, the, the ability to influence costs is, is probably not there. So yeah. you, you, you touched on um, this uh, insurance companies and 
driving profits, et cetera. And one of the things you you mentioned as we kind of think a little bit about Obamacare was that the caps on health insurance profits was a success by setting the 85% medical loss ratio. There's been some recent thinking that that actually drives up prices because the insurers are limited and what they really want to do is get a sicker population so they get 15% of a higher number. Do you think that's having an impact? Uh, it, it's potential. It's a possibility. I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I don't ignore that as a possibility. What I would suggest is, if that's happening, it's relatively small amount in in this in in the category in the grand scheme of things. It's a small percentage of a small amount, so it's not the kind of thing that's driving up costs dramatically. And at the end of the day, if you look at what I do is the the net profit margins of payers generally, the net profit margin as a segment within the industry is probably among the lowest of all the segments. Um, It's typically below 5% as a net profit margin across all the different books of business for a big payer like United Health or Cigna or Aetna. So, okay, take them out of the equation completely. You still have to have the administration function of claims processing and uh, insurance in general. So even if you took out all of the profits, um, it, it wouldn't have the kind of impact that I think everybody's hoping or thinking it would relative to our national healthcare expenditure. So does that then point the target to providers? I'm sorry, what? Does that then point the target for savings to providers? That's where the the money needs to come from? Well, look, we have the highest cost healthcare, and and a a large part of that is simply the cost of the procedures and treatments that we're doing in very high volume. So yes, Healthcare delivery itself is is uh, is a very large component of the cost uh, crisis that we're facing, and part of that goes to the uh, protection of all the different specialty groups that we've created over the years that have different tiers of uh, compensation relative to their specified training. So for example, uh, you know, an orthopedic surgeon is probably in the neighborhood of 400, they on average will make $400,000 a year compared to a primary care doctor who may make about $200,000 on average or half that amount uh, per year. So there's this sliding scale and of course, what we've done is to incentivize these high profit procedures and treatments by these subspecialty groups that are higher paid. So the whole system is geared towards that optimization and delivery of high cost um, healthcare services and treatments are, are a key driving element of that. Yeah. So in, in the book, you mentioned the, uh, Price of excess by Price Waterhouse Cooper, and uh, that 1.2 trillion is is sort of you know excessive services in the behavioral, clinical, and operational areas. How how do we get that out? 
Yeah, so it, it, there's a lot of different ways that we tackle that, but the complexity of the system that we're working with is such that it lends itself to all that fraud, waste, and abuse. And the range is anywhere from a low of about 25% all the way up to 50% in terms of the amount of dollars that are wasted, that are fraudulent, or that are abusive relative to what we need in the way of healthcare. So there's a big chunk of money there. The challenge is getting at it because of the complexity that we've built up around it. And th that's where we have to we have to get to a system that's much simpler. And that was part of the design of Obamacare was to help bridge into a new form of coverage that was available to millions of Americans that, you know, if you think about it, had gotten there, some of, some of them had gotten there because they were denied coverage because of a pre-existing condition. And so now we're opening the doors to create an opportunity for people to get coverage in ways that we hadn't before, which tilts us towards a more universal healthcare coverage system, but it doesn't get us all the way there. Right, and you discuss you know, and advocate for universal coverage in this. And, and obviously, this was sort of a step in that direction. Um, but interestingly, it's not really, as we've seen recently, become an affordable alternative. Um, is that because, as I think, maybe the, uh, the players continue to play the system? Exactly. We, we're still playing with the politics of actuarial math. And the fact is, this is a this is a decade decades long battle that we've had with actuarial math, and we keep fighting the actuarial math, and the math always wins. And so we wind up looking foolish the more we fight it, and that's what we're continuing to do is to fight the actuarial math. We have this system of what I call selective health coverage. We select by age twice, employment, income, uh, heritage, which is the Indian Healthcare Services, uh, military service, which is the VA, federal employees. And so we have all these different tiers, and yet we still wind up with a huge number of Americans that are uninsured. And every other industrialized country has standardized on universal health coverage. And so that's a fundamental, you know, that's a fundamental shift that we tried to, to make or, or tilt towards with Obamacare, but it it is very political. But can we, even if we put in universal coverage, which I think it's good to get everybody on insurance, give them a product it, or have them purchase product, whatever, but is it that, you know, without something, without being able to say, no, you can't do that, is that just going to cause costs to continue to skyrocket? So it comes back to the issue of, and that's what you're sort of alluding to here, is rationing. And the fact is that every healthcare system on planet Earth is a form of rationing because it's an expensive system wherever you are on planet Earth. 
the industrialized countries have all gravitated towards a rationing mechanism in one form or another. What they so, haven't what they haven't done is what we've done is to play with the gamification of coverage. What they've done is to say effectively, look, however we ration healthcare, we're going to make it a, we're going to make it equal for the most part for the entire population. And by the way, that's how you get to population health. Yeah. So, so, but, but let me ask you it this way, because I, I, I firmly believe it can be done without rationing. You know, we just discussed this $1.2 trillion sitting out there. That's just waste, fraud, and abuse. Right. So we've got essentially, I think you said 27 to 50% in the book is considered possibly waste, fraud, or abuse. Isn't that the area, if we did this right, we would do them both? Yeah, and that's part of the argument that I make, is that the irony, the irony here is that we could really, we're a wealthy country, we can really afford any healthcare system we choose to design, we just can't afford the one we have. <laughs> So, you know, and that's at one time I was, I was working on this piece, Dan, you probably appreciate it. And I was going to say what we need is one of the shortest words in the English language in healthcare. We need to be able to say no, <laughs> no, you can't do that. No, you know, uh, provider, you can't do that. And it seems like whatever system we develop gets casinoed. Is that right? right. And this isn't unique to healthcare. But my argument is that we should not do this within healthcare. If you look at the airline system, or if you look at the hotel reservation system, you know, the price of a hotel room in San Francisco can vary by hundreds of dollars, depending on the time of year, and depending on the, the, the hotel itself. So we have these different tiers that are based on consumer choice and consumer affordability. And we do that in the retail space perfectly. The seat next to you on an airplane may very well have been three times the price that you paid, even though it's right next to you and it's not a different seat. But the point is that we've tiered these and gamified these retail experiences. And I, my only argument is that we really can't do that. We shouldn't do that in healthcare. Yeah, I agree completely. And we're coming up on a couple minutes left. Um, we just had the election last night. You know, <laughs> Obamacare is out there. What's your thinking on where this goes now? Yeah. So uh, a great question in part because the, the country is in what I would call hangover and recovery mode. I know I am. <laughs> uh, nobody sort of, sort of, uh, could foresee this, but here we are. And it, the real big question is now that Trump has won, the challenge is we don't really know who or what we elected. And the question ahead is, will Trump be a celebrity politician like Arnold Schwarzenegger? At the end, Arnold had very little to show for his actual governance of the state of California. Or will Trump be more a uh, mafia-style Don, like uh, Italy's Berlusconi, with trades and deals that are backdoor designed to benefit his own personal wealth? Or will he be a card-carrying, true card-carrying fascist like Mussolini? 
So these we don't know. We don't have any track record of how he intends to govern other than what he said on the campaign trail. And to be honest, what he said on the campaign trail is uh, is hard to decipher in terms of what the real road ahead looks like. What will the influence of his cabinet be with members like Newt Gingrich, Rudy Giuliani, Chris Christie, and Sarah Palin? Yeah, well, it looks like we're coming up on the half hour here, Dan. There's so much more to get to in your book. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks for having me. Much appreciated. And that will have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, Dan Monroe, for his time and generous insights today. Do follow Dan's work uh, on the web at www.dan-monroe.com and also on Twitter via at Dan Monroe. So until we meet again on Pop Health Week for Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying, love trumps hate. Bye now.